Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, Sears files for bankruptcy, and Facebook is developing a new way to help you hear things, and it doesn't involve your ears. But first, the escalating conflict with Saudi Arabia over the fate of missing Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. So here's the latest. The Saudis' big business conference next week, nicknamed Davos in the Desert, is on life support. First, it lost CEOs from big companies like Ford and Uber, and now it's losing Wall Street as well. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon bailed on Sunday, followed early this morning by BlackRock CEO Larry Fink and Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman. And just for some context to show the relationships here, J.P. Morgan has helped manage some Saudi sovereign bond offerings and is also supposed to help manage what would be the largest IPO in history for Saudi state-owned oil company. Blackstone, for its part, it recently received a $20 billion commitment from the Saudi government for a new global infrastructure fund. Now, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin reaffirmed on Friday that he still plans to go to the conference, so long as it isn't canceled first. But President Trump is now moving a bit off his original posture that preserving an arms sale deal is more important than the possible murder of a journalist. Here's what he had to say this morning. I just spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia, who denies any knowledge of what took place with regard to, as he said, his Saudi Arabian citizen. I've asked, and he firmly denied that, I've asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to immediately get on a plane, go to Saudi Arabia, go to other places if necessary, which he probably will. Now, it's really important to remember, we still don't know for sure what happened here. We think we know what happened here, but a lot of that comes from Turkish government leaks, and some of those have been a bit dubious, including an early report that the Saudis forced Khashoggi to open his Apple Watch via its fingerprint ID sensor, something Apple Watches don't actually have. So what we're operating on now is really call it best available information, which does include the stark fact that Khashoggi hasn't contacted friends, family, or coworkers for weeks. And largely in the absence of White House leadership, business bigs are trying to walk the tightrope of moral responsibility and fiduciary duty. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, who on Sunday wrote a piece titled, If a Prince Murders a Journalist, That's Not a Hiccup. Uh, so, Nicholas, you led off your column by noting that you've known Khashoggi for 15 years or so. How would you describe him, not his resume, but as a person? You know, he's not flashy or dissident. I, I think that there is this misperception now that he was some kind of a grenade thrower or some radical Islamist. There had been times when he had, uh, early in his career, when he had been more of an Islamist. But for much of his career, he worked for various Saudi officials. He was generally supportive of the Saudi government, but he, he wanted more reform. And I think he was troubled by the directions the crown prince was taking the country. But he was very much a part of the system. And I think that was one thing that very much troubled the regime. The gist of your piece, and correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but is that the American business and political and media establishments have kind of fell for a charm offensive by the crown prince. And so I'm curious, did we all fall for it because he's really smart or because we're all really dumb or something in between? I think 
it was more our dumbness than his smartness. <laughs> but I, you know, I think there were a few things going on. I mean, I do think there, you know, there's been this enormous frustration with Saudi Arabia for a long time. And I think he knew how to push our buttons. I think he, when he talked about reform and things, you know, like women driving that are very visible, then I think it was easy to fall for that. I think that also some of his fans, including those in the White House, Jared Kushner, President Trump, that one of the big factors for them was this desire to have a Middle East peace plan between Israel and Palestinians that would get the backing of Saudi Arabia. So I think that the prospect that Saudi Arabia would support such a plan, both with financial resources to buy off the Palestinians and also to um, give it its backing. I think that was really important. And there, too, I think we got played. Speaking of getting played, I got to ask, you obviously work for The New York Times, your columnist for The New York Times. The Times was a media sponsor of this thing until obviously the last couple of weeks. But some of the things you talk about in the column, what Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen, you know, the fact that it has regularly continued to jail political opponents, including some of the women who are advocating for women to be able to drive. That stuff all predates the stuff with Khashoggi. So I got to ask, as somebody who works for The Times, your thoughts on your employer basically legitimizing the regime? You know, I have enough trouble defending my own square inch of column that uh, I'm not a, a spokesman for The Times. You know, I do think we've had some great reporting and some that, you know, that, that could have been better. Yemen, to me, is one of the most, you know, important issues here because you've had 8 million people facing starvation. You've had thousands who've been who've died already. And I do think actually that's an area where we had some great uh, coverage that has been very difficult to get because it's uh, the Saudis have closed it off. We obviously were seeing this drumbeat of executives today. It's really kind of Wall Street's turn bailing on this conference uh, that's occurring next week. Do you believe that these organizations are actually going to cut business ties or, or is this going to be the big PR offensive? We're not going to the conference and then everything else is maintained. So I think it's largely a PR offensive. And look, you know, banks, for example, are salivating over the uh, prospect of uh, a national public offering for Aramco, which would be a, a huge deal in which they very much want a part of. And I think they still want to carry favor with Riyadh to get part of that. But they also care about their public image. And I think they're trying desperately to balance that. And if they can, and they realize that going to Riyadh to participate is creates a kind of public relations nightmare for them. So I don't think we're going to see them walking away from Saudi Arabia. I think they're going to be balancing the money to be made with concern about their image. What do you think happens next? And, and I guess I ask in the context of, is there a possibility, do you think a, a legitimate possibility that, that if this continues the way it has been, and if there is some definitive proof here that Saudis did what we kind of all seem to think they did, is it possible that the crown prince won't be next in line? And if he's not, what replaces him? It seems as if the narrative may be to blame this on rogue elements, whatever that means. Uh, President Trump has now you know, raised the possibility that there were rogue murderers involved. And this would kind of fit a Saudi narrative that might explain if they can't produce Khashoggi himself, then blame it on some rogue officials and imprison them for a while and see if the problem goes away. I find this absurd. We understand from intelligence intercepts that it was the crown prince himself who had been behind a plan to detain Jamal Khashoggi. This is something that happened inside the official Saudi consulate in Turkey. They apparently were two planes that left Saudi Arabia to go to Turkey to deal with the body, etc. And some of those people had ties to the crown prince. So I find it 
absurd, but I think that may be a narrative that in the context of ambiguity, they're going to try to play out, and that would be face-saving for all concerned. Turkey doesn't want this to blow up, too. And so it's conceivable that Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the Trump administration together would settle on some kind of a narrative uh, like that, have some other fall guy. I hope that doesn't happen. You say you hope that doesn't happen. So my final question for you, Nick, is explain exactly why. And I guess I ask in the context of this, which is MBS seems to be a pretty bad guy. He has done a lot of really bad things. And then the counter argument would be kind of the old FDR line. Yeah, he's a bastard, but he's our bastard. Is there not an argument to be made that if it's not him, what replaces him could be much, much worse, not just for us, but for the world? I don't think that's the case. The previous crown prince, for example, was somebody who the U.S. had worked with a long time. He, there were certainly problems with him, but he was a somebody who was predictable and he wasn't causing problems repeatedly the way this crown prince has with by invading Yemen, by creating a confrontation with Qatar, by kidnapping the Lebanese prime minister, and now apparently by murdering Jamal Khashoggi. So we have a lot of history with Saudi leaders, and this crown prince is kind of off the charts different. And so whether or not the Saudi royal family will intervene, I think is impossible to know. Uh, King Salman clearly you know, wants his son to succeed him. But there's also a lot of annoyance and aggravation within the country at what the crown prince has done. Nick, thank you very much for joining us. My final two on the Sears bankruptcy and Facebook's kind of creepy new technology right after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Sears, which this morning filed for bankruptcy and says it plans to close over 140 stores by year end. And in fact, there might already be some liquidation sales by the time you listen to this. Now, why it matters is that Sears was to the 20th century what Amazon is now for retail trailblazing, ubiquitous, and iconic. Think of the Sears catalog. Now, there's going to be lots of postmortems here, mostly focusing on mismanagement by a guy named Eddie Lampert. He's a hedge fund manager who's owned Sears for the past decade or so. But to me, it's bigger than that. It's a reminder that no giant business is invincible, no matter how it might look at any moment in time. And finally, Business Insider reports that Facebook is developing a new technology that would let you hear through your skin not through your ears. Basically, the technical explanation is it pairs an audio sensor to a system that makes kind of tapping vibrations that map to root sounds in the English language. Now, I've got no clue if this will actually work, but if it did, it could provide an alternate method of communications for deaf people and also for those operating heavy machinery or those with wireless earbuds that fall out, which means I would be able to listen to videos on Facebook without actually having to listen to them. And we're done. Big thanks for listening to us and to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers. Have a great national grouch day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.